uh, Abba Father, again, I, I thank you for all that you've done today. And, and uh, I come to you empty-handed. I do not bring a righteousness of my own. I, I cannot be found in righteousness that I generate. I want to be found in you, your son, Jesus. And I know that's the heart's desire of everybody here. And ask by your grace and because of your kindness, would you let that happen? Help us to know and experience your grace tonight. Truth, thank you that in your son Jesus, grace and truth find perfect balance. Um, please bless in the name of the Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. All right. Okay, Rand is clicking in. So, hey, Jennifer, good to see you. Yeah. I'm so glad Jennifer's here with us. So glad that uh, Rand is here and... Phyllis and Jim going to be clicking in. So this is wonderful. You want to turn to Revelation 14. Revelation 14. And that's what we're going to focus on tonight. It's going to be pretty challenging and need everybody to, to own this thing with me. And because I believe that the body of Christ uh, actually bears the burden of interpreting Scripture together. It's not the, uh, the, the exclusive task of a, of a staff member to do to, to the interpreting of the scripture because the holy spirit the resident teacher lives in each one of us and so we have to honor that so all right what i'd like to do now is um, i'm going to read the first the first uh, block the first paragraph and uh, we'll we'll walk through that together so uh, it reads as follows reading from the new american standard translation uh, then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones, now watch these descriptors of, these, of the 144,000. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These are the ones, these, these have been purchased from among men as first fruits. To God and to the Lamb. So they're purchased to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Fascinating. So let's start with that block. Uh, what in the world does this mean? Who are the 144,000? So let's, um, I'm going to share the screen with those that are uh, on Zoom. And so here we go. I'm going to share. And so you guys uh, should see my screen right now. Okay, um, so let's look at the first, the first sentence. Then I looked and behold the lamb 
was standing on Mount Zion. Uh, I interpret this, Janice, I'm not sure if you've worked through this. I interpret this as this is the spiritual Mount Zion in heaven. I do not believe this is Mount Zion as in Jerusalem in the geography in the Middle East. I think this is the spiritual Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000 saints. Now, uh, Revelation chapter 7 refers to saints with the same number. And this is where we have to really be careful on how we interpret this group of people. It's going to be a bit of a challenge. Uh, One of the things you notice, just to, to show you the contrast between chapter 14 and chapter 13, in chapter 13, we learned that uh, you could get a mark of the beast, and you could get the mark on the forehead or the hand, all right? And if you, if you put chapter 13 and chapter 14 side by side, it's as though you're getting this comparison chart. These are the followers of the beast and their qualities and what's going on with them, and they have a special mark. Then you get to chapter 14. Well, these are the qualities of their opponents, the saints, the 144,000, and they have a special mark too. So John is intentionally contrasting two groups of people, those who follow Jesus and those who follow the beast. And when you lay 13 and 14 next to each other, you can see a very deliberate comparison of the two groups. All right. So... Let's consider who these these 144,000 are. They're very special. They get to be a part of a song, writing uh, the singing of a song that only they understand and only they can learn. Now, we really don't know what it is. We don't know. I'm hoping one day we will, but we don't know. And I'm, I, I bet it's, you know, it would be number one on the K-Love, you know, top 40 if we could figure this thing out. But not yet, we'll wait. Um, but evidently, it is so special. Does it have something to do with redemption? Something to do with the lamb? Something to do with this idea of being purchased? I, we don't know. Uh, it, would, it would appear to be logical that that could be the case. But whatever that song is, they get to sing it. And that's absolutely fascinating. So they get to sing, sing a very, very special song. And they're worshiping and singing before the four creatures the elders, and uh, it's an amazing worship event. Okay, so who are these these people? Uh, when we look closely at, at the language, it becomes evident that they belong uniquely to the Lamb because they do have a branding, a mark. Let's talk about branding. Uh, in the New Testament world, soldiers who were defeated in battle were branded on their foreheads. All right? Slaves who were disobedient, for example, they tried to run away and they got caught and they were brought back, they were branded and marked and uh, with a concept like, this is a runaway slave, you know? And that branding created identification. Uh, that he was shameful, she was shameful, and bound them to their owner, all right? Sometimes people were branded or tattooed because of religious devotion. I know you mentioned that earlier, Kirby. 
that sometimes there was such a profound dedication to a particular Roman god or Greek god that this person dedicated their entire life just to the service of this god or goddesses. And in doing that, they would be branded or tattooed as a way of saying, I am devoted to this god, this goddess, and I, I give my life and I will be loyal to this God and this God alone. So those are, those are some of the reasons why they were branded. Uh, it is possible that uh, there's something else in mind here, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Let's look at, at um, verse 4 and start the five descriptors, the five descriptors of who these people are. Number one, they've not been defiled with women not been defiled with women for they have kept themselves chaste. Now the, the New American Standard translate this as chaste. Janice, what does your translation say there? Revelation 14.4 Okay, Pastor Chris, I have several for you to choose from. <laughs> we have King James, we have the pure word which is more of a literal word-for-word -word translation okay. from my understanding. Yeah. Which we have NASB, we have HCSB, and NLB. Okay. NASB. Yeah. What are Pretty some much. of the translations you saw? They have kept themselves chaste. How does it translate it in, in what you're reading? Okay. In the pure word, it says, they, these are they who were not defiled with women, definitely not made unclean, they Unclean. are virgins. Okay. Unclean. Okay. Yeah, they are virgins. They are those who follow the lamb. Okay. Where to who might move. Yeah. They are those made bought away from among men, the first fruit of God and the lamb. Okay. That's the pure word, which is a different. Right, right. Translation. I'm still kind of reading through it, but it's, okay. and it's a little hard to understand sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, anybody here uh, at the church? What do you they're celibate. Anybody else? The Holman Christian says virginity. Virginity. Uh, actually, Holman Christian's doing a good job there. So the actual Greek word is parthenos. In this form, it's parthenoi, which indicates it's plural. There's more than one, plural, parthenoi. You've heard of the Parthenon, you know, which celebrates a virgin, the virgin. So virgin is actually a really good translation of parthenos, but here's plural. So they've kept themselves chaste or as parthenoi, as virgins. All right, now that's tough to, to figure out. Here's why: Parthenoi, Parthenos, is almost always used to describe a woman, not a male. So it's really unique. Why? And it's clear that these are males. The the uh, pronouns and nouns and all are have masculine endings. So maleness is in view, but it's really strange that that John grabs the word Parthenos which is a very feminine idea, that it's a female virgin, not a male virgin. So it's really unique. So what's going on with that? That creates some problems in how we interpret this. And these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes, uh, which is beautiful language of loyalty. We'll look at that. They have been purchased from among men. That's a fascinating word. And then of course, their first roots to God in the lamb, and they uh, do not lie. No lie was found in their mouth, and they're blameless. So lots of vocab there important. So let's let's click a slide here. So if you're um, 
you're looking at this um, on Zoom, you're getting to see this, and let me do it at the same time. So we've got several options on who these virgins are, these Parthenoi, all right? One option, you're looking at it through Zoom. Option one, the 144,000 are in fact celibates and virgins. That's who they are, all right? And uh, if that is the case, we have some very serious problems with that, with that position. Before I tell you the challenges, let's talk about why that's plausible, all right? Uh, was Jesus single? Yes. He certainly was. And in Matthew 19, he teaches that there are those who are single for God and some who make themselves eunuchs for God. And so there's a really unique and almost cryptic celebration of celibacy and virginity in Matthew 19, 12. So this is not too far off the mark here. We can't just write this one off. What did Paul say about his singleness? I wish you were all what? Just like me. Because when you're single, you get to have this, this complete focus on the Lord without any distractions. The one who's married is concerned with how he will take care of his wife or take care of her husband. Okay. Um, however, even though we can, and by the way, Marcion, also known as Marcion, he was a, a pastor and theologian in his day, second century. He actually formed a church exclusively for celibates because he believed only the celibates were the purest followers of Jesus. Okay? <laughs> only the purest followers of Jesus. So, all right, so is this, is this who this group is? Okay? Now, let's talk about what, why this is difficult. There is virtually nothing in the scriptures that says that sexual intimacy inside of marriage will defile you. There's nothing in the New Testament that says that will happen. In fact, uh, uh, Genesis 2, and you can go on and on, really describes, describes sexual intimacy in marriage as being a good thing, not a bad thing. It is good that God created male and female. So if this is the case, we've got a problem, right? That only single people can be a part of the group of 144,000. And by the way, the 144,000 in chapter 7, it's symbolic language for who? Everybody. The entire kingdom of God. All, all those who are born again. You know, And so... That means males and females, you know, married and single. So it's problematic if you take this very narrow, uh, Kirby literal interpretation. Another interpretation here is that it's, it's a reference to just those who are sexually pure uh, and no action, no sexual impure actions of any kind. Zero to, okay. Well, okay, got it. You know, purity is a beautiful thing and a holy thing and a virtue that, that everyone in church uh, commits to. But can, when you read the sweep of the New Testament, is that the unique qualifier for someone to, to be a part of God's elite super army? It really isn't. So that's, so we get, it's, a little, it's a little difficult here, okay? Let's look at another one here. The 144,000 are really courageous Christian young men who uh, were martyred before marriage. 
which is there's something there. I was thinking more like children is what I was thinking of. Very good, very good, David. So there's actually tombstone inscriptions, epitaphs, that use the word Parthenos, virgins, to describe people who died uh, and were murdered or martyred uh, prior to marriage. So if that is the case, option three, then we're talking about 144,000. Now I want you to appreciate this believers, young men, possibly some women, but there's an orientation to men, who had such a passion to serve God that they were willing to be executed to maintain their faith. If that's the case, this might explain why they are so unique that they get to sing a song nobody else gets to sing. Only these people. Pretty amazing, all right? Let's look at option four. Uh, this is really a spiritual army preparing for battle. Now, here's what's interesting. Philip, you're nodding your head. If you read in the Old Testament, when Israel was called to holy war, what, what were the men, married men, supposed to do? Abstain from, from intimacy with their wives to prepare themselves for battle. In other words, in other words, you can't be focused on the battlefield and, and be focused at home and missing your wife and kids. You've got to realize that if, if, you're, if you're going to be a good husband, you better protect Israel from invaders. And at that point, they want separation. They want purity because they got to go into battle. And is this, and, and Bauckham and others and GB Caird and others kind of pick up on this, is there something here? I think there really is. There is some militaristic language here when you put 13 against 14 and you see the beast and their followers with their marks, you know, and in chapter 14, hey, we've got the lamb and their followers with their mark. So it's almost like we're engaging for epic battle and the two armies are in array. They're in formation, ready, you know, ready to engage in combat. So you've got that feel here. You've got that. Uh, but I still think that's a challenge. And so, um, oops, let me go back here. Um, I really, uh, my position is that we're looking at, at option five. This is the language of the promised bride of Christ. Here's why I think this is the most tenable, probable position. Rome is described as what in Revelation? Go, go for the bottom of the barrel. And also a, as a woman, she's a, she's a whore. Exactly. So Rome is described as being codenamed a whore and codenamed Babylon. Okay. That being the case. And by the way, this is in the Jewish Old Testament scriptures as well, that Israel, uh, members of Israel who began to go after foreign gods, what was that called? Whoredom. It was called whoredom, or idolatry, or spiritual adultery. Look at Hosea, look at Isaiah, look at Jeremiah, look at the prophets. And so Israel would go, would go after other gods, and it would be, uh, it would be described by the prophets as though it's, it's, it's uh, spiritual acts 
that are reminiscent of physical acts of immorality. And so when you see the big, the full perspective of, of uh, Revelation, it makes the most sense to me that the 144,000 are not a limited and exclusive group of people who are morally squeaky clean. They've literally never sinned. I don't think that's who this is. I think it's symbolic of a multitude, far more than 144,000. It's symbolic language that these are males and females who refuse to worship the beast and engage in spiritual immorality. I think this makes the most sense of the text. And that includes not participating in the Roman religious political system. I think that's, that's what's going on. So, all right. Um, so let's pause for a minute and take some questions. Do we have any questions at this point? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yep. Yeah, Kirby, you actually quoted Richard Balcom, who's a brilliant, brilliant scholar. This is what Richard says. What makes these people followers of the beast isn't that they're sexually immoral. What makes them followers of the beast? Idolatry. They're worshiping the beast. They're, they're engaging in the Roman religious political system. That's what makes them awful. That's what makes them worshipers of the beast. It's not because they have a problem with lust. That's not what makes them bad. It's idolatry and paganism, participating in paganism. So therefore, as it is just, therefore, it's not being sexually so squeaky clean that you can be pronounced literally sinless. No, it can't be that. It's, you know, it's equal for equal. It means these are Christians who have not worshiped in pagan gods and honored pagan gods. You know, that's what this thing's about. So, okay, um, let's or see. They did, uh, but then repented and asked for forgiveness. Are they included in this group? It's <laughs> a tough one, Terry. Let me explain. Let me explain. Terry asked a good, a good question. What if they, it's called lapse to lapse. So what if a Christian who, who professes loyalty to Jesus, right, and then lapses in other words you get a choice sign the document that you worship Caesar and 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 give your offering burn some incense read the poetry to the Caesar and you get to go free you're literally saving your hide when you do that and then you realize you know like Peter you denied him three times you weep I caved in under pressure and you go back with your certificate 
you know, of compromise, you know, and you go back and now you've got shame and, and, and you realize it's wrong. And so you repent and you want to go to the bishop and you confess your sin, confess to the church. How would the, the early church had to struggle with that? And the, the church how actually, how many times you get to do it? it, it one time <laughs> and that's it. You get one and done. No more. No three strikes. You know, they did it once. And the church actually split over this. There were two groups. One was no second chance, none. You're out. You're a follower of the bees. But the other, the, the church that believed in grace said, no, if it's gender, you get to come back. But one time. <laughs> it was tough. It really, really was tough. I know, so. I know it's one thing, and this is the uh, amplified one, because they have been purchased and redeemed yes. from among the men right. of Israel. Yeah, thank you. And we, I want to get to those words here. So, um, Janice, did you have a question? Yes, I mean, to me, it seems like when they talked about the 144,000 in chapter 7, verse 4, 4, yeah. And now they're talking about 144,000 in chapter 14. I would think it was a different 144,000. Yeah. They would yeah. clarify that. So yeah. that in my mind says it's the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Right, right. that's what it says yeah. in chapter 7. Yeah, so it delineates I'm, all 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and Janice, there are those that, that hold to that, that there are multiple groups of 144,000. And, and, and that's something to work with. But uh, I think what's important, would it, someone, go ahead. Would it, would it clarify that for us if there were multiple? It just seems strange that it's such a specific number that it would apply to multiple groups. Well, That's all yeah, but yeah, but but there's specific numbers for a lot of things, and and it's very symbolic, like six or seven or something like that. It's hard, Janice, but here's what we can say with great confidence: that God has multitudes in mind. You know, the old Jehovah's Witness, they they're the ones that kind of put the copyright on. 144,000, and that's it. The group tops off, not 144,000, and one. And, of course, that became really an absurd idea very quickly. So, uh, yeah, these are things to, to work through and be challenged by. And uh, in, in 14, I think we are talking about the greater body of Christ. Um, or, you know, I'm inclined to think possibly these are martyrs. I think that's my next if I can't be settled on five, I think I'm going to go with the martyr model. But it's really a challenge, very much so. Um, okay. Chris? Yeah, go ahead. Um, well, I was thinking option number two, that there are people who never sin sexually ever. Right. That um, if you consider Jesus' definition of adultery, just looking at a woman lustfully, right. that is a lot. And, um, and the idea there's none righteous, no, not one. Yeah. And we're not righteous on our own so it doesn't seem like anybody would fall into that category yeah thank you jennifer nobody's getting in yeah right because, and um go ahead uh had a question i was trying to find it um oh one was what jesus was already talking about maybe you're going to get into it about why that number but then my other question was i mean honestly 
multiple times I've been reading along like this is great and then I get to verse four and I feel like I've been slapped and hit with the label like there's something just dirty about being a woman yeah it's so easy to read it that way yes if it's if it's not that do you have any idea why the language is so obscure because it'd be so easy to misinterpret that and misapply oh. it and i think people have yeah in history. yeah well um you've asked a brilliant question and uh the answer is going to be challenging so uh yeah. please listen with grace okay. okay in the ancient world okay when it came to uh, sexual sin, by default, women were perceived as being the temptress. Uh, it is a woman who has a corrupting influence on the man. Does that make sense? Muslims still, Muslims still believe that, I think, yeah. Oh, you bet they do, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And so, you know, hence the story where Jesus is, uh, being tested that a woman is caught in adultery. Where's the man? He's gone. Of course, it was a setup. I'm sure he was paid. Uh, but it's the woman who was taken because the Pharisees, Sadducees, all believe that by default, women are morally corrupt. Uh, women are weak, easily deceived. Where did that idea come from? Eve, Adam and Eve. And it's based on the Adam and Eve model. And so this is some of the cultural backdrop, okay? Now what is amazing is in the New Testament, we see a, a beautiful reversal of those ideas with Jesus, where he recognizes that women are default or by default, not the corruptors, the temptresses, those that bring down a good man, that that's not the case at all. Uh, and you see that with the apostle Paul as well. And so, um, because of that background, Jennifer, I think John is grabbing at a metaphor that is easily understood in that culture. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women. Paganism, the Roman, the godless system of Roman, politics, economics, and religion. The beast, the emperor. And it's just an easy metaphor for the churches in Asia Minor to get and understand what John is talking about. Now, unfortunately, you and I are 2,000 years removed, and that's a very offensive idea. And if I, I wanna be very clear on something. Uh, when I look, at, let's, just, let's just pick on the United States for a minute. Okay, when I look on the mess that's going on in the United States of America, be honest with me, who's driving it, males or females? Yes. Males, I, it is males. Listen, it is males in some of the key positions of power in, in the government, uh, at local level, state level, national level. Males have been calling the power shots for a long, long time. And they have used and abused people for a long, long time. The idea that women are by default weak, deceptive, 
uh, corrupting people. I, do, I think that's, uh, that is not true at all. I think that is an ancient Mediterranean value still today in Muslim cultures. I, I just don't think it's true at all. I think it's mostly men who are screwing up the U.S. and, and it goes on and on and on. Now, I don't want to go to the other extreme. It's all the men. You know, the world would be great if it wasn't for men. We, we, we don't want to fall off the horse on either side. Let's just go with Paul. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's males and females. But man, when I see leadership, it's, there's a lot of men in power. And they've been that way for hundreds of years. So, Jennifer, that's how I understand the text. He's grabbing at a, a model that would be easily understood in the first century world. Well, that kind of that made me um, remind me of my other thought because it's something I hadn't thought of before, sure. and it's to do with that the word for virgin. That word you said it's Parthenos. usually used. Yeah, uh-huh. that it's usually referred to women. Yeah, but in this case, it's obviously men. Yes, and so. That was that kind of so culturally. Correct me if I'm wrong, but culturally, in many cultures, there's been a double standard of a woman has to be pure, a man does not necessarily correct to be a good. I mean, that happened in Europe. That's just all over the world, and it does look here like it's obvious that God is holding men to at least the same standard. Agreed. Okay. Absolutely agreed. Yeah. But again, and it depends on your, your the pos- interpretive position you're going to take. Are we talking about sexual values and morals? Or are we talking about spiritual purity? Mm-hmm. And I default to uh, interpretive option number five, that we are talking about not engaging with Rome, the beast, otherwise known as Babylon or the great whore. And that's why the sexual metaphor is used. So um, let's push on just a bit here. The next descriptor, these are the ones who follow the lamb. The word follow is a participle verb. It means this is what they do every day, all day. It is their normal characteristic behavior to follow the lamb wherever he goes. And that is beautiful language of discipleship. And then David, as you'd mentioned, these are the ones who've been purchased Agarazzo, purchased and, and redeemed. This is beautiful language. So this is interesting. Um, Terry, you'll appreciate this. In war, when nation B conquers nation A, they take away the choice citizens as captives, as slaves, the spoils of war. All right. And so it's Elizabeth Schusler-Fiorenza who argues that this word is used for a purchasing agent. The conquered people group sends a purchasing agent into the enemy territory to buy back citizens that were conquered and pays fees to buy them back and take them back to their homeland. It's also used to describe the marketplace, standard economic process, business, trade, and and describes uh, the buying of slaves in the market, in the agora, agorazzo, to, to purchase something, yeah. And that could be uh, material goods, but it also could be a slave. So that's a profound word that's being used here, that these are people who are being bought back by the dominion of Satan and the beast because they've been born again. They've been saved, right? They've been purchased. They've been redeemed. They've been uh, bought back 
from among men as the first fruits. First fruits uh, simply can refer to those who are born again. Uh, and and they're, they're born again to God and to the Lamb. No lie, this is important. No lie was found in their mouth. Uh, Jennifer, so here you go again. So to be a part of this elite group, do you have to be so squeaky clean you've never had a lustful thought? Well, the next problem, you can never tell a lie, <laughs> okay? And typically, here's the play on words. If you say you've never had a problem with lust, well, you're committing the next one. You're lying about it. So, all right, we're all in trouble, right? You can have lust for food. So what does he mean by no lie was found on their mouth? Does that, or, you know, we're talking about little Phoebe, my two-year-old granddaughter who comes out of our food pantry with four or five pieces of gum in her mouth and she's smacking it like it's a giant golf ball. And we say, Phoebe, did you go take that gum without permission? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. She's lying right through her gum. She's lying, you know. Uh, is that what he's talking about? Or just a good old lie? Or is it something else? So those of you on Zoom, we'll start with you guys. What do you think he means by no lie was found in their mouth? Maybe because they're redeemed, they can be blameless. And so now their mouths are filled with the new song instead. Okay. That's good. By the way, Jennifer, is the screen sharing stopped? You can see me? Yes. Okay, we're good. Anybody else on what it means here at church? Um, no lie, if I don't know. Interesting. Good. Say that again. Okay. Someone else, you know, Phyllis, Randa, any ideas? Chris. Yeah, go ahead. Hey, it's Carrie. Um, so in the little notes underneath, it was kind of interesting. It says, no lie, as in the 144,000 speak God's truth accurately and precisely with no exaggeration or understatement. Yeah. Blameless, not sinless, but sanctified. Okay, good. So I thought that was quite interesting. Sure. Being completely honest in God's truth and precise with what you're saying, mm-hmm. not exaggerating his word or understating it. Yeah, that's good. Philip, what do you think? For some reason, my mind went to um, the Old Testament, actually, and the prophet Isaiah when 
God charged him with ministering to Israel, he said, I have unclean lips. And then the angel came with the coal and put it in his mouth so that he could prophesy. And like you said, anyone who's ever lived has lied, but that may mean that they've been cleansed. And so, and like everybody else has kind of echoed, uh, because of that, they speak truth mm. uh, because they've been cleansed. Right, right. Um, by the way, everything that everybody said is spot on. You know, it, it, it's just obvious that we have to be truth tellers. That's unquestioned. Um, some of the background, Philip from Isaiah 53 reads as follows: 53:9, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. So there may be an echo hitter, Isaiah 53, 9. All right, here's how I understand the text, that no lie was found in your mouth. This isn't about truth-telling, like, did you steal the cookie? Uh-uh. No, that's not what it's about. It's about holding true to your confession that you are loyal to Jesus and Jesus alone. I think that's what's in mind here. Now let me explain. Can you imagine... Joe Biden, let's pick on Joe, he's not here, all right. Joe Biden becomes president of the United States in November. And because he knows there's a lot of deep-rooted Trump supporters in, in America, he decides to issue loyalty certificates. And forms are sent out, and questionnaires are given. And if you check the right boxes, that you will honor Joe Biden and you'll respect his decisions and you'll respect his judges and whom he appoints and whatever executive orders he signs, you will honor Joe Biden. And for doing that, you'll get a tax break, a certificate of loyalty to Joe Biden. Sign it, fill it out, goes to the IRS, you get a 25% tax break. What do you think about that? I think I'm their taxes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Now, those listening about Zoom, I'm telling you, that happened in the first century world, in second century. Okay. Their emperors actually, when there was political unrest, would issue certificates of loyalty. Soak that one up. Yeah. Manipulation and control. Now, what I'd like to do now is go into Revelation 14, verse 6. Uh, and we're just going to touch on this briefly. Um, this is what the text says in verse, verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach. Now listen to this gospel. To those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said to them with a loud voice, this is the gospel, this new eternal gospel. Fear God. And give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. That's a gospel. Now, I agree with uh, uh, George Eldon Ladd that this is a gospel of the last chance. This is a warning. The final judgment is coming the clock is ticking down, and once it hits zero, 
there's no second chances to repent and squeak in to God's kingdom. This is it. So this eternal gospel is a, it's a symbol of grace and mercy that God's saying, y'all on earth, I'm giving you one last chance. The door's still open. You better repent. If you don't, it's shutting and nobody else is getting in. All right. So fascinating. Now what I want to do is read for you now another gospel that went out in uh, the early the early church all right now this gospel went out because a political leader named Fabius promoted this all right listen to this this gospel Janice you'll appreciate this since providence which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life. Providence has set in most perfect order by giving us Caesar Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he, Augustus, might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even in our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done since the birthday of the god Augustus was beginning of the good things, the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him, which is Asia resolved in Smyrna. That was resolved. This little gospel that Caesar Augustus is a God and a savior figure. Now, what do you do when you confess Jesus? as your Lord and Savior, and then someone reads this to you and expects you to endorse it. If you've endorsed it, a lie was found in your mouth. You betrayed Jesus, and you just turned to the beast known as Rome. This is just to the Caesar. We're not talking about the hundreds of other gods that were uh, assigned perhaps to your city where you lived. I think the idea that no lie was found in their mouth has everything to do with being true to Jesus as your Lord and your Savior alone. Does, can you hear Peter in the courtyard and a little servant girl saying, hey, I recognize you. You're you're one of those, aren't you? And Peter, I don't know who this man is. And of course, the third time the rooster crows and Peter weeps bitterly because he, a lie was found in his mouth. Yeah. I think it's a concept of loyalty. And they are blameless. Now, this is what's interesting. So David, you'll appreciate this. First fruits comes out of the sacrificial cult system like during the harvest, you take some of your offering 
the first fruits of the harvest and you sacrifice it to the God. Israel did it to Yahweh. The word blameless, guess what that word means? It refers to an animal that was about to be sacrificed that must be without defect. Okay? So when you talk about first fruits and blamelessness, you're talking about spiritual things. You're talking about worship. And they are blameless because they are dedicated with pure loyalty to God and the Lamb. Does that make sense? All right. Man, intense stuff. Okay, how do we pull this in our world today? You're the body of Christ, those on Zoom, those here in, in uh, the church. How do we pull this into our world today? What are some ways that we can apply what we've covered? Uh, those on Zoom, Kirby just mentioned that there's lots of little miniature versions of the gospel being propagated on social media, primetime news outlets, the internet, politicians uh, promising their utopian, you know, plans, whatever. And that actually goes along with what I was thinking um, when you read that alternative gospel yeah. so it's it might be a fatal flaw in humanity and a core issue right now as well as other times maybe people have a tendency to look at whatever government there is to look at the government to do what god is supposed to do say that again jennifer please please say that again <laughs> just that it's a fatal flaw in humanity to want to look or tend to look at the government to do what God is supposed to do. You just quoted the book of Revelation. <laughs> this is the problem. You've got, you've got people turning to Rome as though Rome is God. And then you've got Rome exploiting that opportunity and abusing people. Absolutely. And by the way, is Satan behind all that? Of course he is. Of course he is. Very demonic. Very satanic. Jennifer, that was brilliant. Yes. Very much so. Yeah. Someone else, how do we pull this into our world today? It can be done, huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can be done. Yeah. And by the way, I, I just, I love Paul. Paul's had such a tremendous influence on my life. You know, he writes in Philippians 3, I don't want to be found having a righteousness of my own. 
Because at that point, I'm not blameless, you know. A lie is found in Paul's mouth. I want to be found in him with a righteousness that comes from, from Jesus. That's the, only way I'm, that's the only way I'm acceptable to God. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let me tie it off with this. If you've got your scriptures handy, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. And this would be fun for you to research because there's several references here about this. So, so Paul writes to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life to which you were called and you made a good confession. You made a good confession. This has to do with having no lie in your mouth. In other words, when you confess, didn't Paul say confess Jesus as Lord? That's your confession. You can't add another Lord to, to that without adding a lie in your mouth. Does that make sense? So this concept of holding true to the confession. It's, it's in several places in the New Testament. It's really fascinating that Christians, uh, Philip, those who follow Jesus, hold to the confession that he is their Lord and Savior. And you don't, you don't turn and compromise even for a certificate of loyalty and a food benefit that may go with that. Uh, you remain faithful to the land. You do. So, okay. Uh, the earliest followers of Jesus would share meals together. And on many occasions, for some of the early followers of Jesus, the meal that they shared, known as a, an agape meal, a love meal, uh, for many of the very poor, that was the meal that they had that day. That was the food that they had. They were that poor. And if you were holding to the confession, and if no lie was found in your mouth, then you may have experienced economic sanction. The local trade guilds would refuse to employ you, forcing you into poverty. And so the meal that you had at the Lord's Supper table could be the very only meal that you had that day. Very important. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, he writes some protocols, you know, Wait, wait, you, you guys that are, that are wealthy, you're coming to the, to the house of worship, a home, and you're eating up all the food and you're getting drunk on the wine. Can you imagine getting drunk on the wine? And then when the poor get there, there's nothing for them to eat. And Paul said, he chastised, don't you have houses in which you can eat and drink? When you come to the Lord's table, you wait for the poor to come so that they can have something to share. And then Paul begins to say in 11.23 that what he received, he passes on to them. That in the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take, eat, all of you. So those uh, online, if you have your Lord's Supper ready, and those here, we do... Let's take the bread, bread together and I'll pray. Abba, Father, we love you. And we thank you that we have been purchased and redeemed by the Lamb, not because we are good, but because you are kind and merciful to us. We take the bread in remembrance of you. Amen. Let's take the bread.
In like manner, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink, all of you. Let me pray. Abba, Father, we take the cup in remembrance of you, knowing that it is through your blood that we have the forgiveness of our sins. And through the blood of Jesus, we're made pure. Abba, Father, thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's take the cup. I want to end with a scripture about grace because it is so important. In Psalm 130, the psalmist writes this. Lord, if you should mark iniquities, or, or you might translate that, Lord, if you're going to count sins, who can stand before you? Who's qualified to stand before God? If God's going to be a sin counter, who can stand before God? No one. But the psalmist says, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. We don't have to live in horrific shame because we don't measure up to an impossible standard. We can enter into Jesus Christ. And as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, or to the Corinthian church, he said, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the only way that I'm in. That's it. It's not because of any righteousness of my own at all. So let me pray and bless you all, and we'll, we'll go home. Abba Father, thank you for Jennifer and the profound insight that she brought tonight. Lord, it, it, she's so gentle and she is so insightful. Thank you for her. Thank you for Janice, her family, Carrie and Jeremy. Thank you for Phyllis. Thank you so much for Randa and Chris and all the people here. Lord, we love you and we thank you and ask that we be loyal to you. And thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all so very much. I'm glad you were a part of it. Jennifer, thank you, dear.